0: Welcome to Silicon Valley Founder's Secrets. My name is Christina Drew Weaver. And my name is Mahamanyan Kamau. Our guest today is Rob Chestnut. Rob Chestnut is the former chief ethics officer at Airbnb. He served for nearly four years as the company's general counsel. While at Airbnb, he developed a popular interactive employee program called Integrity Belongs Here. He previously led eBay's North America legal team, where he founded the Trust and Safety Program. As a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Justice Department, Rob ran the major crime unit and prosecuted many cases, including bank robbery, murder, and drug trafficking. Rob is a graduate of Harvard Law School and the University of Virginia. He's also the author of a new book, Intentional Integrity. How smart companies can lead an ethical
1: revolution.
0: Hi Rob, how are you doing?
1: Christine, I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Doing great. How are you holding up in the uh, COVID? Uh,
1: I'm, I'm uh, settled <laughs> down here with my kids and uh, managing, watching the, all the craziness in the world. and uh, uh, Doing all right though. How are you guys doing?
0: We're doing great. We're yeah. doing great. We're in Palo Alto and it's just so great to see you. I think it's been Uh, you know, a few years since last time I I saw you. So thank you for being on our show. Very honored to have you here.
2: Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you for the first time as well. I'm so could you share with our audience what you mean by intentional integrity in the book
1: right well let's start with a traditional definition of integrity you know integrity I remember there's a great quote integrity is what um, what you do even when no one is watching but increasingly Muhammad in the world today everybody's watching right now with the internet and videos everywhere the world is constantly watching it and so integrity for me is do you have a North Star what's your purpose? What's the way that you want to live your life? What's the way that you want to operate your business? And with integrity, it has to be according to some sort of principles that would generally be recognized as good or having integrity. So that's what regular integrity is. Intentional integrity is a recognition that it doesn't just happen naturally. You can't just say, oh yeah, we've got integrity and not think about it, not have a specific conversation about it. Intentional integrity is where you have leadership intentionally making a decision that we are going to operate with integrity, talking about it in an open, human, authentic way, and actually having a plan around wh- how this is going to be driven into the culture of your company. You have to make an intentional effort around it. And I think that's the most successful. Uh, way of handling integrity. Uh, but I think that's what you got to do. As you know, we are living
0: in a pandemic. We live in a, you know, uh, crisis, you know, for many individuals and organizations and small business owners. Uh, many people are in survival mode. And how could you, how could they can benefit from this intentional integrity? And why, why would they maintain an integrity? How could they maintain an integrity during this, you know? Yes. Difficult times,
1: yeah, Christina. Somebody came up to me when I was uh, tr- just finishing up the book, and they said, "Well, does this mean your book's out the window? You know, everybody's just in survival mode. <laughs> ethics is yes. ethics is a nicety, right? When business is going well.
0: Yeah.
1: In reality, mm-hmm. this is probably the most important time. You know, crisis, crisis reveals the character of a company. Mm-hmm. And you know, when when you d- handle a crisis poorly it will leave a lasting impression. Because, look, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and when you, when you handle it poorly, it makes a lasting impression. But when you handle it well, um, an act of kindness at a time like this is something that makes a lasting impression as well. So you know, there are a few things you can do. You know, One is a leader you have to sacrifice first. Simon Sinek has a great book called Leaders Eat Last." And it, it goes back to the military tradition of, you know, the, how the leaders in the military would make sure all of the troops in the, on their team were fed before they got in line and ate. Uh, a corollary to that, I think, is that in a crisis, leaders have to sacrifice first. So a great example of this is Adam Silver in the NBA. You know, when it became apparent you know, that the NBA had to cancel their season and they were going to be hit with a financial crisis, the first move that Adam Silver made was cut his own salary and cut his, uh, the salary of his leadership team. And that's what Brian, you know, Brian did at Airbnb as well. Because you can't ask others to sacrifice as a leader if you're not first in line to accept those sacrifices. Um, another thing you've got to do is you've got to prioritize the safety of the people on your team. Again, I think I have a lot of high regard for Adam Silver. Um, the moment the first NBA player tested positive, Adam Silver didn't hesitate. Uh, uh, he immediately Uh, Suspended the season right at that point because he realized that just playing a game at that point would endanger the players. And they put a lot of effort into uh, planning for a restart of the season. But a top priority has been, can we do it safely? There's another story uh, that I tell in the book about a guy at a a packaging company down in L.A where they had to work through the pandemic because this is a company that handles uh, the packaging around foods and the like. So when the pandemic hit, um, what did the CEO of the company do? Um, Well, he he needs the workers to work throughout the crisis, right? But Mm -hmm. uh, how do you get the message out that if you're sick, you need to stay home? Now, a lot of leaders, what would a lot of leaders do? Well, I know because I've seen it. They'll have their, their HR person send out a note saying, if you're not feeling well, you need to stay home. And that'll be buried inside of a long email. But that doesn't address the fear that these employees have that if they stay home, they may not get paid. They may lose their job, right? So mm-hmm. what did what did this CEO do at Emerald Packaging? He actually went to the plant and got everybody and said, look, everybody, I want, if you are sick, if you are not feeling well, you need to stay home. And an employee did, and they were doing this with with a number of remote employees, or a remote employee said, but I'm the only one that knows how to operate a particular machine. Uh, What happens if I'm sick and the machine can't be operated? The CEO looked and said, I want you to repeat after me, stay home. (laughs) <laughs> right? And, and the employee said, stay home. And everybody laughed. But you know what? By directly being the one to deliver the message and by repeating it in that, I call that an integrity moment, right? You're in front of everybody. You're asked that question. The CEO in that integrity moment sent a very clear message about what you need to prioritize. And that is the safety and health of the employees. That was powerful. And that, that's, to me, real leadership.
0: That's a hard choice for, like you say, some of the company that they have to, you know, balance out the financial return, you know, and keep the operation going, and also maintain the safety of the workers. And of course, some of the workers, they, you know, they are very concerned about the pay. You know, are they going to lose their job? And especially the hourly workers.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's a balance, Christina. You're right. And look, some companies, you you can't afford to keep. You may not be able to afford to keep your workers. So in that situation. You do what you can, you know, and every company is different. You know, Airbnb had to lay off you know, nearly 2,000 people. Um, I, I think they did a good job in telling those people and telling those who remained that this was a very painful thing. They explained it very carefully as to why this move was necessary, and they treated the employees with empathy and with generosity because Airbnb could. There was a, not only a generous severance, but they did little things. They paid for a year's worth of health insurance, Cobra, mm-hmm. for example, which in a situation like what we're in right now is critical. And I'll give you another example of a small thing they did. They let the the employees they were laying off. They let them keep their work laptop. So think about it for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, most companies in that situation like send me your equipment. We need to get our equipment back. But in reality, what it's a depreciated computer. You're not going to need the computers because you've just reduced your workforce. On the other hand, the people that you're laying off may need that computer to search for a job. They may only have one computer at home and that computer may be taken up by a partner or spouse or a child who's working from home or doing school from home. So Mm -hmm. allowing the employee to keep the laptop to help them find another job is a a small way, but but still an important way to show that you care. And that's what I think, you know, you you try to do when you're in a situation like that. Uh, you you respect the fact that the people you're laying off are human, and you treat them with empathy and with gratitude, as much gratitude as you can.
2: Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying has a lot to do with the culture and the leadership at the organization, right? In your book, you talk about the six Cs, right? You yeah. said that it starts at the top with the CEO. I thought that was a very uh, insightful thing that you said, and from that point of view, I am a CEO of my organization. There are people that work with me, right? What are some ways that I can develop and maintain my personal integrity in such a way that it's something that people can look up to me and say, oh, the CEO is
1: living up to what the company is preaching? I think the uh, one big part of it, Mohammed, is just recognizing and embracing the responsibility. Realize that as the leader, people are looking at you. They're looking at what you do. They're looking at what you say. Your words are important. You know, there was a a terrible episode that just recently came out at eBay uh, where a number of employees are actually charged with a crime of cyber stalking. Uh, And apparently it started because a member of the executive team, you know, unnamed at this point, Mm -hmm. um, was angry at a particular little publication and wanted something done about this publication. And they actually use the words, you know, whatever it takes. You know, any, Do anything, whatever it takes. When a CEO says whatever it takes, you can't be surprised when your employees take that to mean, literally, I need to do whatever it takes to carry out the CEO's direction. That's the same sort of uh, pr- uh, language that was used by the leaders at Volkswagen which led to the emissions scandal. You know, we're going to get a diesel vehicle to zero emissions. Do whatever it takes. So you should never use that word that that sort of phrase. You should follow you can follow it and say this is very important and within ethical bounds and within the law, we want to make this a top priority. That's fine. But when you use words like that, that can give employees a license to, to act in unethical ways. So you've got to realize your responsibility as a leader and be careful with the language that you use. Were you surprised about the news? I was stunned. I mean, yeah. I, the eBay I know was founded by Piero Midiar, first employee Jeff Skoll, two really high-integrity individuals. You know, the, 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 the language we used around eBay in the early days was people are basically good. And I know, you know, I used to you know, have lunch and hang out with Pierre and Jeff back in the old days. When we were a small company. I know the way they wanted to do things. And Meg Whitman, you know, Meg Whitman is CEO looked at me on a, on, I remember two occasions and said, Rob, keep us on the right side of the law. We don't cut it close. That was the culture. So I was stunned, but you know, I've, I've been gone from the company now for over 10 years. Uh, Any company where a leader would say these sorts of things and where employees would act this way, uh, it it shocks me. It's not the eBay I know. You mentioned about,
0: you know, you started when the company was still young. And Silicon Valley is the hub of innovation, the startups starting up every day here. And uh, as a startup CEO who reads your book, who is determined to create a culture of integrity at the organization,
1: where could she start? I think the mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make, and by the way, this, this is true for venture capitalists as well, because the venture capitalists are the mentors. They're the ones that are helping the young entrepreneur uh, as they build a business. And I think it's on venture capital to work with entrepreneurs and send a message early on and talk about what are your purpose and values. Purpose and values are things, not things that you develop later on after the is up and going and successful and has a lot of people and revenue is rolling. You need to be thinking right from the very beginning when you're in the proverbial garage, why do you exist? What's your purpose as a company? Profit is not purpose. Profit is a necessary outgrowth of operating as a business. You need it in order to operate. But standing alone is not the reason to build a company. So you need to be thinking about what your purpose is. And you need to send a message right from the beginning to the people that you hire that we're going to do this the right way. Um, And, you know, I I was talking to Ben Horowitz about this. You know, Ben Horowitz told me the story of uh, he used to talk with his financial person early on at a company. And he used to go over the numbers with them and say, is there anything in here that I need to be concerned about? Because he said we might go broke. I might lose my job, but we're not going to jail. And that's the message that you need to be sending when you're a leader, even early on, because that message will then permeate through all the hires. And it becomes part of the place as it grows and gets larger. And in fact, what you'll find is that you'll attract the right people. You'll attract customers. And it gets momentum going. It's hard to turn a culture around once a company gets to be a a decent size because it's already baked. It's baked in the people, it's baked in the way that you operate. So start early. Your book has just
2: got so much stuff. We don't have enough time to cover everything. One, one thing that stood out to me when I read it also was this concept of integrity traps and how small concessions or small compromises could lead to big scandals. And you talk about Enron and many other examples in the, in the book. Where,
1: where do you think these things fail? I I struggle with that one, Mahama. And and in order to to try to get some insights, I went to to visit Duke University. There's a guy there by the name of Dan Ariely. He's a behavioral psychologist. He studies dishonesty. And we talked. He did a movie called Dishonesty. And he studied some big fails like Enron and, uh, you know, the NBA ref that went bad and the like. And I asked him, I said, you know, where, where does it go wrong and how can we prevent them? And he said, you know, he thinks that it goes wrong because people think that there are bad apples, that they're just bad people, and they're good people. And all we have to do is just identify the bad people and keep them out. And once we do that, we're going to be okay. In reality, though, um, there's the potential for bad behavior in all of us. He, he tells the story of uh, an experiment that he does with students uh, with math problems. And the result of the experiment is that at least, this was repeated over and over again, male, female, uh, different genders, different nationalities. 70% of people in his experiment lie. Wow. <laughs> they, they will fudge. <laughs> and they fudge on little things. So they, he said, if you want to stop the big things, focus on driving integrity into the little things. Send a message that little things matter. And when you send, because what happens is that people start, everybody starts with the little things, and they get away with it. And then they start to rationalize that, that, oh, that's okay, because, you know, I can do that, because the company, you know, the company didn't treat me very well last year, so it's okay that I do this. And you, you, you start using your creativity. Uh, you start viewing the world through your own integrity lens. And pretty soon, you've talked yourself into something that is way beyond the, the, the bounds of integrity. So uh, don't let people get started down that trail. Talk openly about integrity in the little things.
0: Actually, I actually just had a time to uh, look, you know, uh, look at the documentary yesterday. And I thought it was fascinating about the pressure, the, you know, incentive, and the people just slipping slope. People got onto something and then it turns bigger um, than I ever expected. Sure.
1: You know, Christina, yeah. Dan... It told me that the the smarter people are, and the more creative people are, the more susceptible they are to this kind of an integrity trap. Because look, what matters to all of us is we all want to feel good about ourselves, and mm. so we we will commit. We're willing to fudge and you know go over the line a little bit, so long as we can still feel like we're a good human being, like it's okay, and we're particularly good at talking ourselves into these things if we've got really good creative minds and we're really smart so you see in a lot of companies some very smart very creative people they get themselves in trouble because they're able to uh, to justify things to themselves that it's okay but that's exactly what ends up putting them on the road to trouble
0: this is very interesting actually you know i was an auditor before so we talk about the fraud triangle and the fraud triangle is the pressure, the opportunity and rationalization. And you just mentioned about the the rationalization part of it. And then as you know, like Silicon Valley, we have a lot of creative people. And how's your book helping us to bring the awareness of ourself, be true to ourself, to you know, be creative, create, you know, great companies and be innovative, but also aware of some of the, you know, things that we need to be careful about.
1: Yeah, they, that's the whole point of the book is that No one talks about integrity, again because there's this fear of it. So Mm -hmm. my point in writing the book is somebody's got to talk about it. And -hmm. you know, there's look, there's uh, there's all you know people will always point and say, well, Rob, who are you to talk about integrity? And uh, it's you know why are you trying to impose your values? I think the point of the book is I'm not I'm not trying to impose my values on anybody. In fact, part of the I think what's really important in setting up like a code of ethics at a company is that you create a diverse team. To get a lot of different perspectives on it, because integrity can mean slightly different things to different people depending on your background and your lifelong experiences. So the key is not the messenger in these situations. The key is really a recognition that it's an important thing to talk about as a team, and that uh, you we all need to make it part of our game. Uh, and so my my goal really in writing the book is to start the conversation in companies about what integrity means at that company, and. If you operate with integrity, what specifically should you be doing inside the company and in the way you operate the company um, so that uh, you, you are a company of integrity?
2: One of the things that you talk about in your book is that if you're going to have something that you are not willing to enforce, then you shouldn't even have it at all in your, in your policy. So how do you balance empathy with firmness when it comes to applying consequences for people who have transgressed the policy that you have?
1: I think too many companies don't do a very good job of driving integrity to their culture. They don't talk about it. They got a rule that maybe nobody's read. Uh, But then when something bad happens, they immediately go to the far end of the spectrum and say, we will have zero tolerance for this. So they have a very harsh punishment. They put out a lot of uh, dramatic statements about how they feel about it. Uh, I, I think the better approach is to have good open conversations about it. Drive it into the culture. When something goes wrong, and by the way, things are going to go wrong. Integrity is, does not mean perfection. If integrity means perfection, nobody's got integrity. There are going to be mistakes made. So when there are mistakes made, um, the consequences have to match the action. Um, you hopefully you don't feel like every transgression has to be met with uh, the, the, the equivalent of a, of a big major blow-up. You can handle it with fairness and with empathy. Now, sometimes that means uh, that you may need a terminated employee if you feel that the rule was clear and that the actions were significant enough. But it means also, I think, that you can have a range of consequences. So, uh, to me, a company can do, should be able to do a variety of things. You can do an oral warning where it's just a conversation with the employee about what went wrong and why. Um, You can do a written warning to step it up a little bit. You can go further and demote someone. And we demoted people from leadership positions saying, you know what, we still want you at the company. But that sort of behavior means that um, you haven't yet learned what it takes to be a leader at our company. So we're going to demote you. And hopefully Mm -hmm. over time, you're going to be able to earn that trust back. Um, You can do suspension without pay. So you can do a variety of things to the, where the consequence meets the action. And I think that's ideally where you want to go.
2: Even before people start breaking the rules, how could we potentially drive the integrity conversation from very early on in the lives of students in maybe high school through college. So that when they get into the workforce, hopefully it's a it as an easier left for them to do this. So what would your advice be for young entrepreneurs? and
1: just even high school student. That's a great point. I've, and I've spent a fair amount of time talking to students and young entrepreneurs in, in college level about this. I think yeah, it, it starts with the way you teach. So let's look at the, what we taught about companies during the, the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century. What did we teach them? We taught them that companies have one major goal. What's that goal? shareholder value, drive, anything that's right for the shareholder is what you must do. So that's easily translated into whatever drives the stock price up is good. So sometimes what drives this week's stock price up is not what's ethical. It's not what's right. And frankly, I don't know why anyone ever thought that running a company meant simply doing what's right for shareholders. Sure, shareholders are important. Of course, your investors are important. But they're not the only ones that matter. You actually, as a company, should have a number of stakeholders. At Airbnb, we talked about our different stakeholders. Uh, Some were our customers. Our hosts were stakeholders. Our guests were stakeholders. Look, the employees that show up every day and put their life work into the company, they've got to be stakeholders. What about your your partners, your vendors, your suppliers, Um, even government and community? These are all stakeholders that you need to be thinking about when you're operating a company. So what I think we need to do is we need to be teaching young entrepreneurs what it means to be a company. And we need to get away from that old 20th century notion that it's only about the shareholders. And we need to evolve to the 21st century approach, which is just in the last couple of years starting to to come into play. And the 21st century approach is the stakeholder approach. Be thinking about a variety of stakeholders. And when you do, you will frequently find that by thinking about that range of stakeholders, that your actions, it's going to be a lot easier to act ethically.
0: I want to turn the conversation a little bit on um, diversity and inclusion. I know you're being a champion for diversity and inclusion and especially important, you know, during the time we're living right now. So can you share us with, with a little bit about, you know, what uh, your experience are and what of the
1: programs you're being championing in Airbnb or eBay? Uh, It it goes back to that notion of, like, you know, who am I to talk about integrity? And really, who am I to talk about integrity? Integrity is something that needs to be informed by a lot of different life experiences and values that you can only get when you have a diverse company. And by diverse, I mean diversity of all kinds, gender, race, nationalities, uh, and and socioeconomic background. At, At Airbnb, we learned an important lesson back in 2016. When... The word got out that guests of color were being discriminated against in bookings. So they were having trouble uh, getting bookings on Airbnb, and that actually shocked people inside of Airbnb. I think Airbnb uh, they were living in this world where uh, you know we had a very idealistic uh, vision of what was going on in the world. So it shouldn't have surprised us, though. Look. Uh, and the reason it surprised people in Airbnb so much, I think, is that Airbnb itself wasn't very diverse. We did not, for example, have a lot of Black employees. And if we had a diverse uh, employment group, a, a, a diverse company inside, we would have learned, you know, look, I have not experienced the sort of discrimination that a lot of Blacks have, have experienced in America. I don't understand. The pain of being discriminated against, and I don't know what it's like to go through life and to go through, you know, wondering what my next encounter might be with police, for example. I, I can't bring that to the table, and if that, those sorts of voices aren't at the table, you're going to have some big misses. You're not going to understand what your customers, what your communities are going through. So, uh, I believe that the, when I'm in a conference room making a decision. I want to make sure that the voices and the faces around that table are are different than mine. We need to understand diverse perspectives. So at Airbnb, it was really important to me that uh, that we work on bringing more diverse voices into the company. I know the legal department. You know, when I took over the legal department, it was already uh, diverse from a gender perspective. Um, And we kept it gender diverse. Literally, when I left Airbnb's legal department, 51% women, 49% men. However, when I took over the legal department, uh, there were only, I believe, 6% were uh, uh, Black or Hispanic. When I left, it was 24.5%. And that reflected, I felt, a a sense of urgency to, to get those different perspectives into the department around the table and thus make it a lot stronger
0: we're kind of running out of time. Can you share a little, little bit about uh, the fun side of you and then uh, you know the creative side of you?
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's a danger in certain professions. You know, if you're in computer science, right? I think Christina, you, you come from a computer science background, uh, or a legal background. You get used to use to using just one half of your brain, you know, the very that that very logical side. And there's a whole other half of your brain that if you exercise it, it can actually make you a lot better in your professional life. So um, when I was in college, I was independent study my last couple of years. So I, you know, worked and uh, helped put myself through school by working at an FM rock station uh, and spending, you know, there' was way in the old days. I, and there's there some people that look at me and don't, uh, don't know what a disc jockey is because there are no more disc jockeys. There are no more records. But uh, yeah, I used to spend records uh, when I was in college. And When I was a federal prosecutor, I actually picked up the hobby of photography. uh, And that photography hobby is what uh, got me uh, connected to eBay and actually helped uh, launch my career as a a tech lawyer. So I I think no matter what you're doing in your life, it's important to stretch your brain a little bit uh, and make sure that you are uh, using both sides of your brain. Because whether, if you're in the creative profession, you can learn by you know, tapping into the logical side. If you're in a very logical-based profession, tap into that creative side and do it with a hobby. Um, and, and I think when you've got a hobby, uh, like I think you, you're a salsa dancer in your spare time, right? Uh, yes. And, 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 and quite talented. Both of them that. <laughs> right? that. And that's fantastic. And I think that, uh, that having that sort of balance in life, I think, uh, makes you a lot better at what you do. What's your favorite song? My favorite. Oh, I could never pick a favorite song. I uh, I'm, I'm constantly playing uh, uh, music from a lot of different genres. Uh, I was Listening to Carlos Santana earlier earlier this morning. Uh, he's a favorite of mine. He actually uh, talked to me about the book. He's actually very much into integrity. Uh, but uh, I I think that uh, music can be uh, can, can help help me put me in different moods and whether I'm listening to The Who or listening to rap or listening to Carlos Santana, it can reflect just how I'm feeling at different times.
2: What is next for you and what are you most excited about in the next few years?
1: I am really excited about being able to have an impact by by this conversation with companies about integrity. I'm hopeful that the book will start a conversation in a lot of companies about, you know, what are we doing intentionally to operate with integrity in the world? Because look, I, I, I'm concerned deeply about climate change, for example. Uh, and I think integrity is deeply tied to how you treat the world when you're a company. Uh, I'm concerned about how employees are treated at companies. And I, I think that if I can help promote a conversation about this with companies. Companies can have a huge impact on the world in a positive way. And I'd like to, to play a part in sort of pushing that along and encouraging it.
2: Thank you so much for your time. This has been a very eye-opening conversation for me. I learned a lot more than... I would have imagined and your book is one of the best books that I've read recently so I'll recommend it to anybody the title is Intentional Integrity Yeah,
0: yes so you can find it on Amazon and Rob I'm looking forward to you can have the, this book in multiple languages so people around the world we have a lot of international yeah. audience so you know maybe we can translate it to different languages and people around the world can have a conversation about it
2: After the week there's a the